Well, good morning. This morning we are starting a month-long break from the book of Luke. Several months ago when Dennis and Jackson and I got together to plan the preaching schedule, we wanted to start the summer with a break from Luke and to take a, a look at the Ten Commandments. There are five Sundays in June, and we're going to look at two commandments a week. Back when we were uh, making this decision, we really didn't know exactly where we would be in Luke, nor did we know where we would be in the life of this church. But I think God's kind of overriding plans are, are apparent. You know, what a great time. Right in the midst of studying Jesus' basic training. Right in the midst of doing some soul searching as a church. What a great time to look at the basics of the basics. You know, what is more basic than the Ten Commandments? So I think this is, is a wonderful opportunity. Now, it used to be that everyone in America, at least, could recite the Ten Commandments quickly by heart. They uh, are the, the, the moral code that was the foundation for this nation. Now, they used to be on the wall of every classroom. Now, before you start uh, shaking your head and uh, bemoaning the straying of American education, well, what about us as Christians? How many of us could name quickly and with any confidence all Ten Commandments? You know, why not? Why do we neglect the Ten Commandments? Well, because they are law. And we're not under law, right? We're under grace. Well, that's true. Does that make the law irrelevant? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will, excuse me, will by any means pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. Then he says a little bit later, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on from there to take a couple of the commandments and expand on them, to, to raise the bar, to make them even more demanding. He says, not only don't kill don't be angry. Not only don't commit adultery, don't lust. Now, what's going on here? Are we under the law or not? Is the law relevant or not? How you answer these questions is very important for you to understand. First and emphatically, we are not under the law. The whole point of the first half of the book of Romans is to make it absolutely clear that we are not under the law. That, that, that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. The theme of the entire book of Galatians is that we cannot be justified by the law. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. So it is absolutely clear Without any confusion, we are not under the law. What under the law means is that we gain our acceptance by our performance. That can be true of any relationship. We can accept each other on that basis, on how well someone lives up to our expectations. But when it comes to, uh, to, to theology, to dealing with God. Being under the law means that we are accepted if and only if we 
obey all of his commandments, all of his instructions. And if we fail, if we mess up on just one small point, then we are not accepted. The point that Paul makes so forcefully is under that system, absolutely no one makes it. None of us measure up. We all fall short, every single one of us. And it is, we cannot make it on that basis to God. So either God had to wipe us all out, or he had to have another plan in mind. And fortunately for us, he has always had another plan in mind. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted. By, by trusting Him, by a personal relationship with Him, we are placed into Christ and all of our failures are forgiven and we are absolutely and unconditionally accepted by the Father. The way the New Testament puts it is that you are as accepted by the Father as Jesus is. Jesus, the one who kept the law completely. You are treated as if you were Him. That's because we are spiritually united with Him. So it's very clear. We don't gain our acceptance by God by keeping the law, by our performance. In fact, if we try to, if we try to gain acceptance by our performance, we turn away from Christ. We, We alienate ourselves from Him. We treat His death as if it were nothing. There is nothing more dangerous to us spiritually than to come back under the law. Our acceptance before God is and always will be based on Jesus' righteousness, His performance, not our own. So, point one, we are not under the law. Does that then mean that the law is irrelevant? Not at all. Well, then what good is it? Well, there are two great continuing purposes for the law. The first and the greatest is to lead us into Christ. Paul calls the law our tutor, to lead us into Christ. And a little later he he, he calls it, uh, he says, We were prisoners under the law until we discover faith, until faith is revealed. See, what he's talking about is that the purpose of the law, if we look honestly at it, without playing games, without trying to manipulate it and, and, and change, change it to, to fit us, then we are confronted with our failure, with our inadequacy, with our inability. The purpose of the law is to confront us with our helplessness. It's like a man who's used to getting up every morning and looking at himself in a very foggy, distorted mirror. He comes to think of himself as quite charming and good-looking and, and uh, clean and well-kempt. One day he's in an a, a art studio. He's looking at pictures of a certain artist. And he comes to this one picture and he thinks it's terrible. He goes to his wife and says, I don't think this is a very good artist. I saw this one picture of a man and, and, and the color was all wrong. The eyes were all bloodshot. The hair was a mess. He was filthy. It was grotesque. So he brought his wife over to look at the picture, and she looks at it, and she says, But honey, that's a mirror. See, the purpose of the law is to show us ourselves as we really are. We think we're pretty good, but if we look at the law 
honestly, unflinchingly, we discover how self-deceived we are, how shallow our love for God, how hard our heart is toward the needs of those around us, how quickly, easily we are drawn to sin. The law shows us ourselves as we are. And as we look at ourselves honestly, we are desperate. We need a Savior. And we cry out, who will save us? And God's answer is ready and waiting. Jesus. That's what his name means. He is the one who saves. He is our Savior and our acceptance before God. This is not only in our initial salvation, our initial relationship with God. This is every day as we look at the mirror of God's word. Jesus saves us from condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. His blood covers all of our sin. We are totally accepted in him. And that is the goal, that is the the purpose of the law, to show us our need, to bring us to faith in Jesus, to meet that need, trusting in Jesus, depending on him, not on ourselves. So the law is a looking glass in which we see ourselves accurately and are, are then impressed with our need so that we will turn to Christ in need and put our trust in Him, come to Him in faith. But the second continuing great purpose of the law is as a looking glass in which we see God. See, the writer of Hebrews describes the law as a, as a uh, shadow of the realities that we find in Christ. What he's talking about is in the law, we get glimpses, we get hints of exactly who God is, what He is like, and what His plans for us are. They're, they're, they're put in, in, in symbolic form, in, 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 in ideas and suggestions. But when Christ came, we got the full picture. By looking at Christ, we see exactly who the Father is, what He's like. By looking at what Jesus did, we understand the full plan of God. He is the reality that, that makes the shadows make sense. But you see, that doesn't erase the clues and the information, the, the hints, the, 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 the suggestions in the law about who God is. And by looking carefully at the law, especially now that we have a greater understanding through Christ, we can see God's character, His heart behind the law, the spirit of the law. So the law continues to have great value for us because in looking at the law, we get to know our God better. And since we were created to be in His likeness, looking at the law, we see what we were created to be like. Like Him. See, the law reveals God's righteousness and His goodness. And as we see that for what it is, then it becomes the standard for us. That's what righteousness is. And as we see Him, it begins to incite in us a hunger and a thirst for that righteousness. We want it for ourselves. See, that last point is so important. The goal of faith is not just that we come out from under the law. Not just that we be freed from the law, but that we also be free to get to know our God. And in seeing Him as He is and looking at Him, we are freed to become more and more 
like him, more and more righteous, free from the confusion and pain and chaos that sin causes in our lives and in the people around us. The goal of faith is that we know our God and that we become like him. Well, uh, let's get into the Ten Commandments. If we don't now, I'll keep talking and we never will. My time will be gone. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy 5. This is the second account of the Ten Commandments. The first one is in Exodus 20. I want to look at this one because I think as we go through some of the other commandments, we'll look at other parts of Deuteronomy just for more explanation of what God had in mind by these commandments. See, Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means um, repetition of the law. This is Moses' last book, his most personal book. And what I think it is, is shortly before Moses' death, he wanted to bring together the most important parts of the law and the explanation of the law and give it to Joshua and the people of Israel to, have, to make sure they caught the, the, the most important stuff and really had a grip on that. So this is kind of Moses' farewell address. I'll start reading... Uh, from verse 6, Deuteronomy 5, 6. This is the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, am, excuse me, I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to the thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the first two commandments. Let me read the first one again because we're going to look at it first. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, God starts by saying, I am Yahweh. That's the name, the covenant name that he gives. Anytime you see Lord in all capital letters in your translation, that's put in there because no one ever writes the name of Yahweh in, in the actual text. We'll talk about that next week, why they don't. But he says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Now, why does he start with that? Well, for two reasons, or, or for one reason, because there's two very important things for us to understand. First thing to understand is that God does not say, I am your God, and as soon as you get your act together and love me more than you love anything else in life, then I will deliver you. It's not the way God operates. never has, and he never will. God takes the initiative. God's love comes first. We love him because he first loved us and only because he first loved us. He loves us and and does what's necessary for saving us. Children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they weren't following God. When God sent Moses to deliver them, they resented him and they resisted him. But still God went ahead and did what was necessary to defeat their enemy, to save them. He brought the the greatest 
nation in the world of their day to its knees to prepare them, to deliver them. See, they didn't even ask for it. God took the initiative to save them. And the second thing that you need to understand is that they were slaves. For 400 years, they had a cruel, harsh slave master in the pharaohs. Now God says, I've delivered you from that slavery so that you can give me my proper place as your Lord and master. You see, we will always have a master. God delivered them from a harsh master to become their loving, good, generous master. You see, that is what God is like. That is the way He is. That's what He does. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He has already acted on our behalf to save us. He's already done what's necessary to to, to defeat our enemy, to deliver us from our slavery. And now He asks us to give Him His rightful place in our lives as our Lord and Master. We will always have a master. Sin is our master unless God delivers us. God has provided what's necessary to defeat that enemy, to deliver us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the ransom, to redeem us from sin's control so that we can then give Him His rightful place in our lives as our Lord and Master. You see, He has freed us to be what we were created for, God's precious possession, God's prized possession. And He has freed us up to obey Him so that we can enjoy the life with Him that He has generously designed for us. He has not freed us up to flop around and to to live in chaos and confusion. He's, He's not freed us to come back under slavery to sin. But if we don't give him his proper place, we come back under slavery to sin. The point is that he has taken the initiative, reached out to us, done what is necessary for our salvation. And then, and only then, does he call us to give him his proper place. That's where that first commandment comes. On this basis, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. The English here can be kind of misleading. Where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me is not talking about like sequence or order. He's not saying, you shall have no other gods ahead of me. But as long as I'm first, you can have all the other gods you want. Uh, Before me is literally in my face. He says, you shall have no other gods in my face. I don't want to see them around. I don't want them in my face. I don't want any other gods in your life. This is not a call for him to be first among many. This is a call for him to be only, exclusive, the, the one and only God in your life. There's a practice in, in people of, of Moses' day to be eclectic and pragmatic. They would look around, and if there was a God that seemed to work pretty well, great, grab him, add him into your pantheon. Do what works. See, when when the people of Israel traveled through this 
territory, many of the other nations begin to worship Yahweh. But not exclusively. They would just add him on along with their other gods because he seemed to work for them. And when Israel was sinning and violating this commandment, they didn't turn away from Yahweh completely. They just added a few extra gods that seemed to be working for the people around them. They just kind of supplemented and and filled in the holes that, that, that the true God was leaving. They just added Baal or Asherah or, or Moloch. You see, they didn't turn away from God altogether. They were just open-minded and pragmatic. Hey, if it works, why not? Well, it doesn't work. God points out that he is a jealous God. He will not play that game. And even though they tried to keep Yahweh first, as soon as they started to add other gods, immediately they began to ignore his word, compromise their behavior, deceive themselves about who God really is. The immediate consequence of adding on other gods was they lost touch with the true God, began to worship a God, a, a figment of their own imagination. You see, that's the danger for us, too. As soon as we start adding other gods into our lives, we lose contact with the true God, and we begin to worship a God who is merely a figment of our imagination. But still, we look to other things in our life to find life, to make us feel alive. Listen to Martin Luther's definition of what a God is. He says, That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. And then listen to how he explains this first commandment. He says, The meaning is, See to it that you let me alone be your God, and never seek another. In other words, whatever good thing you lack, look to me for it, and seek it from me. And whatever you suffer misfortune and distress... Come and cling to me. I am the one who will satisfy you and help you out of every need. Only let your heart cling to no one or nothing else. See, in ancient times, they would look to deities for whatever they needed. They looked to one deity for protection, another one for wealth or or, or financial success, another for fertility or or for physical health. They would look to gods. They would look to deities. We're too sophisticated for that. We don't do that. We don't live in a theistic age. We live in a materialistic age. So we don't look to deities. We look to things to give us what we need for life. But still, we look to other than God to make us feel alive, to give us what we think we need to live. Rather than realizing that these other things are just good gifts from a loving God, we cling to them, trying to to find in them what can only be found in God. We look to all kinds of things, to, to, uh, to careers, to money, to family, to, to all kinds of things. We, we try to find security in money, but it's just not there. We try to find identity in our career, and it's not enough. We take pride in our possessions or our appearance, and it leaves us empty. 
See, we try to feel alive. We try to find life in power and prestige and family and all kinds of things. But these are not the source of life. These are just gifts from the giver of life. We're to worship the giver. To not let our vision be blocked by the gifts, but look past them, look around them to the one who gives them. The only one who can give life. And it isn't until we let go of these other things that we discover that even without them, we have life. See, it isn't until we believe this so completely that we determine that we are going to cling to Him, even if we lose everything else in the process, that either He's going to give us life or we're not going to have life. It's only then that we find freedom from these other gods that pull us away, distort our thinking. Only then do we find true freedom. Corey Tin Boom, who wrote several books about her experiences in Nazi concentration camps, tells of a time, tells of the blessing of discovering that when everything else is gone, God is enough. She tells of a time where she had no food. She had no clothing. She was cold. She was sick. She had no health. She had nothing. She found that God himself was enough to satisfy her completely. Now, most of us have never had the opportunity to discover that. And we are haunted by the fear that God wouldn't be enough. Well, what do you have to have? What would you not walk away from for God to ask? What do you really believe you have to have to feel alive, to, 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 to make it in life? Is it a, a successful business, a together-looking family, a, a respect, praise from others? A sense of your own competence or even superiority in some area of life. See, there's nothing wrong with these things in their proper place. But these are just the, the means. These are the tools that God uses. These are the gifts, not the giver. These are, the, are, are not what give life. Again, don't let your vision be blocked by the gift. Don't cling to these things as if they themselves can give you life. They are not the source of life. When you look past these things to the giver of life, that means that you involve God in every area of your life. You see the hand of your God in everything that you have. Do you have a house to live in? That's great. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. But also realize that were it to burn down today, you would still have Him and He would take care of you. He gave you that house, He could give you another. Do you have a, a job that you really enjoy? Fantastic. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. But don't cling to it. Don't compromise yourself to keep it. It's not worth it. 
It is not the source of life. Walk away from it if it, become, if it comes between you and God. Do you have a family, a together-looking family? Well, that's great. But don't live a lie to keep it looking good. Now, if you have a healthy family, fantastic. Thank God. Praise Him for that. But if there are problems, seek what He would have you to do to deal with those. You won't die. He'll walk through that with you. He'll show you what to do. And He will take care of you in the midst of that. Involve Him in every area of your life. Any area that we keep Him from is proof positive that we have other gods. That we're looking to something, some sin, some possession, some relationship, something else in our life to get life, to feel alive. But God says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not look to anything else for life. Again, it isn't until we believe that so completely that we are, are going to determine that we are going to cling to Him, even if we lose everything else in the process, that if He does not give us life, we just won't have life. It is only then that we find freedom from these other gods in our life, true freedom, and it's only then that we stop Distorting the image of God in our life. Just pretending that we're worshiping Him. And that leads us to the, uh, the second commandment. Verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to the thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment is don't make idols to worship. Now often, most people just view this as a repeat of the first commandment. Don't make idols of other gods and worship them. But it isn't. This isn't just a repeat of the first. He's not talking of making idols of other gods. That's already taken care of. In the first commandment. What he's talking about is making idols of the true God. And worshipping them. See, many times in the Old Testament history, the people of Israel did that. One of those times was when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. The rest of the people were afraid of God. So they didn't go with him. They said, you go alone. But while he was up there, he was up there a long time. And they thought, well... We don't know where he is. Maybe he's dead. They got impatient. They got bored. And they had never seen God themselves. So they went to Aaron and asked him to make an idol for them to worship. The word idol in Hebrew just means something that is formed, something that is shaped. And they wanted something that they could see, something tangible, something comprehensible that they could worship. Now, they claimed they were still worshiping Yahweh, but just in the form of the golden calf. You see, the, the, the golden calf was a symbol, or some people speculate it was supposed to be the throne on which God sat, something for God to ride. But their sin, their, their, their violation was not that they stopped worshiping Yahweh, 
but that they made an idol of him and worshipped that instead of worshipping him directly in spirit and in truth. So let me tell you what the problem is here. The problem is not making images of things. This is not a, a prohibition of art. Some people take it that way, that you're not to make any image of anything God has created. But God himself commanded the creation of images of art and the creation of the tabernacle and the temple. He had them make an image of angels that went on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. God is not against art. Much of art honors him, is glorifying to him. But what's being prohibited here is making representations of him whether symbolic or directly, and worshiping those. Because in that very process, we distort the image of who he is. And we attempt to control him. See, the reason that the people didn't go up on the mountain with Moses is because they were afraid of the true God. The true God is unpredictable. He's not controllable. You can't manage him. And they wanted to feel safe. So they stayed behind and made a God that they could control, that they could feel safe with, that they could manage. But it wasn't the true God. The true God isn't safe. He isn't controllable. But he is good. I'll never forget that scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When I think it's Lucy goes ask the beaver about Aslan, the Christ figure in those stories. He's a huge lion ferocious looking lion and she says is he tame and the beaver is indignant and says of course he is not tame he is not safe at all but he's good you see idol making is our attempt to tame God to control him to make him fit our expectations rather than letting him be himself God is spirit And we humans, of all the creatures of earth, were uniquely created with the capacity to have spiritual relationship. I think that, personally, I think that's what distinguishes us from the animals, is that we can relate to spiritual beings. But we want to make it physical. God insists on having us come to Him in His terms. He wants to expand our spiritual capacity to grow us spiritually. And so He demands that we meet Him on His terms. See, there are only two ways that God has has consented to be represented. Only two mediums. And one is Word, in His Word. He has revealed Himself in the written Word. We come back to His Word. To see what he is like. To learn about him. To, 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 to have our wrong thinking about him constantly corrected by the God we see here. Who doesn't fit our little images. Who doesn't do what we will expect him to. Who doesn't say or act the way we would make him do. We come back to his word and have our distorted images corrected. And the other medium he has chosen to communicate himself is in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate, the complete representation of the Father. And by looking at Him, we see what God is really like. Not in His physical makeup, 
but spiritually in his character, in his priorities, in his relationships, in his attitudes, in his behavior. But again, the way we see what Jesus is like, we come back to the descriptions of him, to the quotes from him in his word, so that we see Jesus clearly, and in seeing Jesus, we understand the Father. Now, I think it's worth noting in Deuteronomy 12, where Moses is giving some more uh, uh, explanation of this particular commandment. He starts off by saying, don't, God says, don't worship me like the people in, in the land where you're going. In fact, wipe out all of their worship. Then a little later on in verse 8, he says, don't worship me as seems best to each of you, as each man, see, as each man chooses is in his own heart. Now, why not? If, if it's from the heart, why not all each of us worship him like seems best to us? Well, because if left to ourselves, we would distort who God is. He is too unsettling. He is too dangerous. And we would protect ourselves and our sin by, by coming up with a distorted image. We would come up with this grandfather image who smiles at everyone, who, who tolerates everything, who makes no demands, in fact, who's having a little difficulty keeping up with everything that's going on around him. Or we would come up with the, the stern, demanding image uh, where, that requires us to earn our own salvation because deep down we want to take care of ourselves. We don't want to trust him or anyone else. We become like the Greeks and the Romans who created their own pantheon. They created a gods in their image and we create a god in our image that we can control. A Roman who wanted power would worship Jupiter. One who wanted wealth would worship Mercury. A pregnant woman would worship Diana. See, each one worshipped the god that fit their ambitions and their desires. And sadly, we do the same. We worship gods that fit our ambitions. And our desire, rather than coming under him as the master, as the, as the Lord in our life. And this not only affects us, it affects our children and our children's children to four generations. See, that's because parents have the second most profound impact on how their children view God. Our parents' words in our formative years stick in our brain. Their behavior is so affected by how they view God. The way they raised us, the way they disciplined us, is so profoundly affected by their view of God that these things are burned into our thinking and our feeling. I said our parents... Parents have the second most influential impact on our view of God. The most influential impact, however is our own relationship with God. As we get to know Him and begin to see Him as He is, rather than as others represent Him, rather than as our own wrong images, as we see Him as He is, as He's described Himself in Scripture and through His commandments. It's very unsettling. At times it's very confusing. But it changes the way we look at him and we realize that he loves us individually and he'll love us forever. That phrase in there where it says he, that uh, he will show love 
to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. That word generations isn't there, and I don't think it belongs there. Because I don't think he's saying, if you love, if you love God, then your kids will love God, and their kids' kids for a thousand generations. A thousand generations would be at least 30,000 years. That's not what he's promising here. What he's talking about is for those who love him, he loves forever. And he breaks the grip of our parents' image of God and our culture's image of God and our own distorted image of God. When we love him and obey him, keep his commandments, he breaks the grip of those distorted views of God and frees us from the slavery to sin that comes from our twisted views of God. Breaks that chain of, of, of confusion, of distorted views. Expresses his love to us as we obey him. We see his wisdom and goodness and love. And we love him. And in, in that love, submit to his lordship. Let him be our master. Well, my time is gone. I, I feel like we just barely got a chance to scratch the surface. And I kind of chomp at the bit because there's so much here. Of course, if we had twice the time, I'd probably still be feeling like we barely scratched the surface. But we looked at the first two commandments. The first one is you shall have no other gods besides him. He is unique and exclusive. Secondly, that you should worship him as he is, not as you would have him to be. It's very simple, very clear, very basic. But if we honestly pursue this, there is nothing harder nor more terrifying. Because what he is calling us to do is to let go of those things in our lives that we have for our whole life held on to, to give us life, to make us feel alive. And it is terrifying to loosen our grip on those things, to trust him that much. He's calling us to to give up our our nice, comfortable views of who He is and let Him shake us up with who He really is and let Him him blow us out of of our nice, comfortable theology. And that is terrifying. If we pursue these things honestly without playing games here, walk down this road with God, our fears will rise up like dragons blocking our path. The only way we can get through that It's going back to realize that we are already accepted in the Beloved. We are already accepted in Christ Jesus. And that His life is in us. And He can give us the courage and the strength to look at those fears for what they are. And as He exposes them to the light, we are healed. We are freed. And we can continue to move toward God like this. Jesus always took the truths of the Old Testament and the Jewish Proverbs and he turned them around. Back in Jesus' day, there was a Jewish proverb that said, don't do to anyone what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Jesus took that and said, do unto others what you would have them to do to you. Here, Father said, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image of me. And Jesus took that and pouring out the heart behind it said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and with all of your soul. That's the heart. That's the spirit of these laws. Let's pray. 
Lord, we want to love you like that, with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our minds, with all of our soul. But we confess we do have other gods, other things, other people, other issues in our lives that we cling to to get life. They don't work, but we are too afraid to let them go. Open our eyes, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Help us to see them for what they are, to release our grip, to trust you enough to free fall, to let you catch us, to be willing to give up our distorted images of you and to see you as you are so that we can discover that you love us and you love us forever. Lord, we confess and admit that we cannot do this apart from your life in us. Praise you that you've done all that is necessary to free us. Now we would walk towards you like this. We pray this in your name. Amen.